0: Hi, I'm Johnny Dumfries, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid.
1: Hello all, and welcome to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. The world of Formula One attracts all sorts. A team these days has up to 30 different nationalities in it, of which some people are multi-millionaires. And that's predominantly the drivers. Some are highly paid members of management, and some, in fact most, are just normal people working all hours to grind out a living. Just occasionally though, you get someone who breaks the mould. Remember the exuberant Jean-Pierre Van Rossum, the boss of Onyx in the late 80s, or Don Nichols, the owner of Shadow in the 70s, who was allegedly a former CIA operative. There's been blue blood too. Lord Hesketh ran his eponymously named F1 team in the 70s, and lots of drivers have shunned their wealth of family connections to join the F1 circus. Prince Beera, Alfonso de Portago, Taffy Vron Trips, to name a few from the 50s and 60s. And more recently, there was Johnny Dumfries, who I'm delighted to say is my guest this week. Johnny's official title is John Crichton Stewart, the 7th Marquess of Bute. He's a descendant of the famed King of Scotland, Robert the Bruce. But if you think his route to the top was easy on that basis, think again, for Johnny was determined to make his own path, working as a painter and decorator, among other things, before Formula One, and even driving a van and doing odd jobs for the Williams team. He splits his time these days between the family seat in Dumfries in Scotland, hence the alias Johnny Dumfries, and his house in London, and he no longer has any connection to the sport. F1 fans will remember him for his season at Lotus in 1986 alongside the great Ayrton Senna. Although Johnny's day of days came at Le Mans two years later, when he won the race for Jaguar alongside Jan Lammers and Andy Wallace. Johnny's season at Lotus didn't work out as he'd have hoped, although he bagged a couple of points finishes in Hungary and Australia. But you should be under no illusions about his pace. Okay, he wasn't Ayrton Senna, but Johnny was still one of the fastest drivers of his generation. He dominated the British Formula 3 Championship in 1984, winning 14 races. And in the six months that followed, he tested for five different Formula 1 teams, including McLaren and Ferrari. At the end of 84, he had the racing world at his feet. And had he made better decisions, who knows what he might have achieved. You'll hear more from this from the man himself in just a minute. Johnny isn't big on talking about his racing career. In fact, he's hardly ever done it since he retired. Until now. His story is unique. I hope you enjoy our conversation. When we talk about racing, Johnny, it's been God, it's been 30 years since you hung up your helmet. How do you reflect
0: on your racing career? I know, 30 years, that's utterly bizarre. And, you know, it seems like another life, which in many ways it was. Uh, when I reflect on it, uh, it's with great fondness. Uh, I loved my career. It taught me a hell of a lot. And it was just a fantastic experience. And, you know, anybody who gets into a professional sport gets into it because it it starts with a passion, and the passion is at amateur level. You know, that does change and shift as, as one becomes a professional. I certainly felt that in my own career, that my emotional feelings about the sport changed when I was a professional, but it was an enormous part of my life, and, you know, I made mistakes, I would rather not have made those mistakes because my career could have been more successful, but it is what it is and I wouldn't change anything. When you say it taught you a lot, can you just elaborate
1: a bit on that? What kind of things did the world of racing and maybe Formula 1 in particular teach you?
0: You reach uh, a high level of resilience. And you think about the way that people start out, you know, people start racing either in club racing or in karting. And, you know, when you're racing carts, you're looking after your own machinery and it's real proper grassroots racing. There's a massive amount of camaraderie. People help each other out. People share information about circuits. They share information about the technical setups of their machines. And, you know, I used to go racing with my mates and it was a really bonding experience. And then as I progressed through the ranks up into the, the higher formulas, I just gained an enormous amount of experience in terms of dealing with people and being self-sufficient. And it's just enormously valuable, and it's irreplaceable, really. You know, And I'm sure that people in other sports have similar feelings about that because we all have to start somewhere, don't we?
1: There's so much to ask you, but I want to start, if I can, by saying I want you to imagine you're about to embark on a qualifying lap in that 1986 Lotus Renault 98T. Maybe Hungary, you went on and scored points there, but you've got more than a thousand brake horsepower under your right foot. What's going through your mind?
0: Um, what's going through your mind? That oh, The engine doesn't blow up because it's got so much boost. <laughs> the tires don't blister because you've got so much grip. <laughs> now, what goes through your mind, it's uh, a massive amount of focus. You know, you're on the warm-up lap and very aware that I want to get the warm-up lap right. And in qualifying, that's mostly about getting the right amount of temperature in the tires. And you've just got to nail it. You've just got to nail it. And, you know, where there are corners that are difficult, maybe a race spec, you can be considerably quicker in those corners in qualifying trim. And you just got to take the car by the scruff of the neck and um, just get on it. How difficult was it to do that?
1: Because I've heard other drivers, Gerhard Berger, for example, saying that those mid-80s turbo cars were bonkers, just so difficult to drive. And Johnny, let's face it, you made it difficult for yourself because (laughs) you made your Formula One debut in one of those cars alongside arguably the greatest driver of all time. I mean, when you reflect back on it, it really was hard for you, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, but listen, I don't want to make excuses. I mean, Berger's right. They were monsters, those cars. They were ridiculous. But, you know, they were also incredibly exhilarating to drive. And, yeah, it was a compromising situation at Lotus. And I would have been better off probably beginning my career with another team, but didn't happen to did do it <laughs> yeah, <I mean. laughs> and Senna had the entire team around him. But, you know, I had a, a great relationship with my race engineer, Tim Dempsham. And, um, you know, it wasn't easy driving alongside Senna. It wasn't. But, you know, there you go. I had my chance and it didn't really work out for me in F1. So there you go.
1: For people who don't know, just explain how the opportunity came about.
0: The opportunity came about through my performance in 1984 in the, in the British Formula 3 Championship and in what was then known as the European F3 championship. I, I won the British in 84, and I was a very close runner-up to Ivan Capelli in the, the European. Uh, so I gave a good account of myself in a, in a domestic and effectively an international championship. Now, having said that, you know, obviously, you know, we were talking about 160 brake horsepower Formula Three cars a huge step into F1. And there was uh, quite a lot of interest in me from various F1 teams. And Lotus gave me a test. And the test was at Donington, and it went well. There was a spot that came available at Lotus. I know that Derek Warwick was, was lined up for that. And to be quite honest with you, looking back on it and looking at the circumstances and looking at my experience at the time, they would have been better off giving that drive to Warwick. And I would have been better off having had a better year in 85 because it was the end of Formula 2, as you remember, and beginning of Formula 3000. And Formula 3000 in 1985 was an absolute joke. And I didn't have a decent drive, so I didn't give a good account of myself And I didn't have enough experience with more horsepower. But the Lotus Drive fell into my lap and I wasn't going to turn it down, was I? Well,
1: you can't. I suppose you never never know if you're going to get another opportunity, do you? You don't. But Johnny, as you say, I mean, I'm going to put a little bit more flesh on the bone there. At the end of 84, as you say, you'd won the British Formula 3 championship, come a very close second in the European Formula 3 championship. And I think you tested for five Formula One teams in about the space of six months. I mean, you really were the next big thing. You tested for McLaren. You tested for Lotus, as you say. You went and tested the Brabham, the Ferrari, the Williams. You had so much going on. It seems extraordinary that just 18 months down the road, you were effectively the second choice to Derek Warwick at Lotus.
0: Well, let's put that into context. The McLaren drive was the price winning the championship. And the Williams drive was a very last minute thing where Williams had uh, a VIP who they wanted to drive that Cosworth engined car, which was a superb little car. It was the car that Rosberg won the championship in, wasn't it?
1: Is that the 08, I think?
0: Yeah, it was the 08 and that was at Donington and I didn't have a seat fitting or anything. And they asked me to give it a, like to warm it up for for this person and then to give him some tips on driving the circuit. And then at the end of the day, they said, look, get back in the car and um, thrash it around and see what (laughs) times you can get out of it. (laughs) I was rattling around the bloody cockpit like a pee in a pod because I didn't have a proper seat. Yeah. Yeah. so that's not what I would, would call a, a proper test either um, the Brabham test was a, a proper test and that was down at Kyle Army and I didn't get to drive the Ferrari until I'd signed a testing contract with them. I never should have signed that testing contract with them it was a big mistake because it led nowhere and I had other options that would have been much better for my career.
1: Okay so why did you sign the testing contract? Was
0: it the sort of Bright lights and
1: slightly dazzled by the magic of Ferrari?
0: Absolutely. And I had advisors at the time, and I didn't have a manager at the time, Tom, but I had advisors at the time who were telling me to take the Ferrari drive. And I was still young and relatively naive. And I took the the Ferrari drive and it was a mistake. I didn't know enough.
1: What assurances did they give you in terms of the program you were going to do for them?
0: They said it was the, the, the four-cylinder engine development program. And that was all linked to the regulations that all the teams thought uh, were going to come into force, and those, those regulations didn't. And they shelved the program. And I think I only went there maybe half a dozen times. Still, let's
1: rejoice in the, the good things about Ferrari quickly. You say you've been there half a dozen times. I mean, can you remember the first time... You pitched up in Maranello and the impression the place made on you.
0: That was incredible. The facility is amazing. The only F1 team with its own test track. And then the history, you know, the history is inescapable. You know, the whole place, the whole area, town of Modena, it's all about Ferrari. Did you ever meet the old man, Enzo Ferrari?
1: He was still alive at the time.
0: Yeah, I, I did. I did. I went into that darkened office. And there, there he was, you know, like <laughs> like a king or like the Pope with his shades on. And it's a very striking place because the whole office complex there, is, it's quite uh, minimal. The office is quite sort of bare. It's just he is there, you know, <laughs> the man's there. And um, now we had a very quick interview and Piccinini was translating, and he signed a copy of his book, Ke uh, Genti for me and um, sent me on my way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if that engine program hadn't been scrapped, do you think you would have got more mileage and, and it would have worked out? Or do you think it was always the wrong decision?
0: I think it was always the wrong decision. But if the engine... Program hadn't been shelved; it could have worked out differently. Who knows?
1: Well, while we're talking, the sort of the, the the big personalities in the sport. Did you ever meet Bernie, Bernie Ecclestone, through the Brabham link and the test at kailami
0: Yeah, that that was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that was very interesting. So he contacted me, and I can't remember if it was no, it must have been a member of his admin staff. But I was contacted and said, uh, and told if I wanted to go and test a Brabham, I should meet Bernie. And I'd been asked by Rothmans, who were sponsoring the the works Porsche WEC team at the time, to go and drive the camera car down in Melbourne at the uh, 1,000 kilometer race there at the old Sandown Park. Which is literally the worst race circuit I've ever driven, (laughs) by the way.
1: (laughs) Was that your first experience of sports cars?
0: Yeah, it was. And I wasn't keen on it at all. It felt horribly claustrophobic. So I said, yeah, I'd love to meet Bernie, but I'm in Australia. I'll, I'll go and see him as soon as I get back. Because shortly after I was due to get back the Kyle Army test was starting. So I think it was a weekend, and I ran to Bernie's flat at that time, which was on that, um, that apartment building on the corner of London Embankment. And there he was, and he was incredibly, <laughs> incredibly friendly. And um, he said to me, well, you've got to sign a, a testing contract with me if you want to drive one of my cars. You know, if we agree that nothing happens after that, I give you my word that I'll rip up the contract. So I said, fine. Okay. So I signed the contract and I went down to Kyle Army and I did the test and uh, PK was there and T O Farby. And that was a great experience. That was a monster, that car. It had terrible turbo lag.
1: How did the test go though? in terms of, did you get a proper amount of mileage? Were you working through a particular program?
0: I can't remember whether I was working through a particular program. It was a Pirelli tyre test, as I recall. I did get a decent amount of mileage. Um, I don't remember setting the world on fire with my lap times, to be honest with you. I think if I, if I had done, I'm sure I would remember, Tom, and I'd be telling you about it now. <laughs> <laughs> I've also read that there was the offer
1: of a race drive with Tyrrell. Um, to replace Martin Brundle after he broke his legs in an accident at Dallas. Is that true? And how come it didn't happen if it was offered?
0: Yeah, I was offered that drive. And um, yeah, I probably should have taken that. But I I really felt that I had um, an obligation to BP. In Formula 3, they had a relationship with Dave Price Racing. I had a, a very close relationship with Dave. Um, We're still really good friends. And the relationship between Dave Price Racing and Les Stacker at BP was a very strong relationship. And I felt morally obliged to honor my commitments there. And um, I'd spoken to Les about it. And as I recall, Les said to me, well, I wouldn't stand in your way, but we look like we're going to win this championship and and I really don't want that to stop. So you stayed in Formula 3 instead of
1: progressing. That's that's a big call,
0: (laughs) isn't it? It is a big call, yeah. It is a big call. And apparently, I think that Tyrrell was a pretty good car. Um, I think the other factor, Tom, as I recall, is there weren't many grand prix remaining on slow circuits where i could have shone because the turbo cars were just destroying that thing on on the quick circuits weren't they that's
1: an understandable reason to to give it a pass i suppose um and i and i guess because you were the next big thing you were confident that you were going to get other offers i suppose
0: yeah i was reasonably confident yeah but I didn't do myself any favours by not having a manager.
1: Why didn't you have a
0: manager? I don't know. It was bloody stupid, wasn't it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, there must have been lots of sharks out there wanting to um, have a you know have a slice of your career. I'm...
0: Yeah, I think you've probably just given the reason that I recognise them as being sharks. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's sort of knowing the potholes isn't it for all the the young drivers and even i mean even today it's the same it can turn on a sixpence a driver's career and you've got to be one step ahead the whole time haven't you
0: yeah, yeah you have and you need good advice i think drivers at a young age who have good pragmatic outlook and a good level of self-confidence are probably better at choosing you know who they want to be associated with so look, we're in
1: 1986 now. You are racing the Lotus. You've actually raced Senna in Formula 3 at Silverstone. I remember there was a, in the end of 1983. How wary were you of him going into that year?
0: Yeah, I was quite wary of him. You know, his reputation as somebody who was quite obsessively focused on, on his own path and not particularly friendly was already there that those characteristics were already there, so you know it 's not like I felt like I even knew him particularly well because you know even when he was in lower formulas, he was very aloof that that was part of his persona did he
1: share data? did you discuss the driving of the car and the setup of the car? Was it a completely open team like that
0: not completely, but on occasions it was I remember when before the british grand prix and we were um i think in the first untimed session at brands i was quicker than him and it didn't take long it didn't take long for his race engineer to come over to tim and say let's have a look at your setup did you learn anything off Ayrton? no not really but having observed him i'll never forget in winter testing before the 1983 Formula 3 season, which was my first season uh, where I showed a lot of promise. And actually, we didn't complete the season because my sponsorship money dried up. But Dave Morgan, who was running the team, who was a fantastic guy, really incredibly nice man, but also extremely good at setting a car up and advising a young driver because he himself had been a very quick driver. And we were at a cold, drizzly, horrible test day at Silverstone and we were looking at the timesheets and Dave said to me, see all these names here? Forget about all of them apart from Brundle and Senna. It was that obvious. Yeah, their performance was that obvious, but it, it's about focusing on what matters and just always aiming to be the best.
1: The flag goes out. PK has won the first World Championship Hungarian Grand Prix. Piquet and Senna are the only ones to go the full distance, with Nigel Mansell third and still leading the World Championship, Stefan Johansson fourth in the Ferrari, Johnny Dumfries fifth in the Lotus Renault, Martin Brundle sixth in the Tyrrell Renault, three British drivers in the top six after a
0: magnificent Hungarian Grand Prix.
1: How do you reflect on 86 itself? You finished in the points on a couple of occasions. Do you feel that it was a two-car team at Lotus? Do you feel you got equal kit? Do you feel you had the same opportunities as your teammate?
0: We didn't have equal kit. If you remember, at the beginning of the season, I had a lot of DNFs. Almost all of them were down to the gearbox, and I was developing the new six-speed gearbox, and it was a disaster. And in the end, we, we discovered what it was. And those Hewland gearboxes were made in two halves. And there was this, a longitudinal seam down the middle of it. And they discovered that the casting was flawed. And one side of the casting was much thinner than the other side of the casting. Because I remember in, in a test at, um, at Paul Rickard early on, the whole casing split because the gearbox had flexed because the casting wasn't man enough for the job. So we were kind of <laughs> wondering whether I I was damaging the equipment or not. But it, you know when we discovered what the problem was, it was okay. But you know I had a lot of DNFs at the beginning of the season, and and I think the other thing, Tom, really is I didn't put it on the line enough. I was very conscious of not wanting to be the rookie driver who kept stuffing the car into the Armco barriers. You know, it's important to finish, but it's also important to make a decision about when it should be put on the line and when a bit of caution should be added.
1: And that comes with experience and confidence, I guess.
0: It does. And you, if you look at drivers like Prost and Lauda, they often really sacrificed things in qualifying. They sacrificed grid placings in qualifying to get what they knew would be a good setup in order to get the results that they needed to accumulate points.
1: But putting it on the line, Johnny, I mean, you didn't have a problem doing that in any other car, it seems. In Formula 3, you were devastatingly effective. And of course, you went on to win Le Mans for Jaguar and things like that. So what was it about the F1 car that made you more cautious?
0: I think it was quite daunting with my experience to step into F1, and you're in the spotlight. Particularly, the spotlight shone brighter because I was Senna's teammate. So, yeah, I think I, I think I was a bit overfaced by it, to be honest. With you being really honest with myself, what a good season
1: of testing is what you needed before then going up to a, a race seat.
0: Yeah, or more experience, as I said, you know, if. if If 1985 had been better for me, and I'd had more experience and more race miles in bigger horsepower cars, it would have been better for me, definitely. I was short on experience, and I think my confidence suffered because of that.
1: What about your relationship with other drivers on the grid? I mean, there were five Brits that year. Was there a bit of a Brit pack going around? or
0: Um, Not particularly. Particularly, I was pretty friendly with Berger because we'd raced against each other in F3. Mansell was always really nice and friendly with me. There was a bit of tension between Derek Warwick and I because, you know, he felt that I pinched his drive. (laughs) And as I said to you a minute ago, I think he was right. (laughs) Um, But I I wasn't always very focused on being friendly with the other drivers.
1: So clean sheet of paper, because I still can't get my head around the F3 driver who was so quick and the guy who, you know, only had two points finishes in Formula One. To me, there's a, an impasse there that there's something not right. And with a clean sheet of paper and the opportunities that were there, whether it
0: was the Tyrell or the testing contracts, what would you do differently now? I would have signed a testing contract a long-term testing contract with Bernie and done Formula 3000 with Mike Earl at Onyx Racing, which Bernie offered to me at the time. That drive was on the cards with a testing contract and I turned it down to go to the Ferrari testing contract. That, for me, was the pivotal moment. Bloody stupid decision.
1: God, extraordinary, isn't it? There's one thing I wanted to ask you about. In Adelaide, I think you were one of the first guys to have an onboard camera in the race it's a small thing but do you ever find yourself looking at that footage now going
0: crikey that when men were men sometimes people send it to me and and i and i i watch it sometimes (laughs) not not very often and i invariably think no definitely should have been quicker through that corner (laughs) So, look. What was the outlook for eighty-seven at the end of that season? It was pretty bleak. There wasn't much on the cards. I probably should have looked closer at going to Japan and doing the uh, the Japanese F two or F three thousand. I can't remember when Japan switched into three thousand. You know, the money was very good there. It was a good lifestyle, and it would have been great experience. But people. still looked upon it back then as a bit of a backwater and a road to nowhere. I definitely thought IndyCar was an option. There wasn't a whole lot of offers, but I did get some really excellent drives. Well, I had one great result in IMSA driving for the Dyson team. I drove for Sauber at Le Mans, broke the lap record, which stood for a few years. And I was quick in that car. And I drove for Richard Lloyd at Brands Hatch. And we finished second and that result materialized in the Jaguar drive. As a result of that second place at Brands,
1: Tom Walkenshaw got in touch, did he?
0: Yeah, I'd been, on, I'd been on to Tom and I could never get through to him, which meant he wasn't interested. <laughs> and it, it had come back to me that Tom was of the opinion that I was a crasher. And then I, I had a great result at, at Brands driving with Baldi and we... We finished second in the thousand kilometer race and split the two of the Jaguars. And do you remember at Brands, you had to walk across the pit straight to get to the um, through the tunnel, the press center after the race. Yeah. And I was walking just, I was on my own. I was just walking across the track and suddenly Tom kind of materialized at my side and said to me, if you want to talk to me about a drive, give me a call. And then he walked off. (laughs) Wow. I thought, yeah, I'm definitely making that call. How quickly did you make it? Yeah, probably the next day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, interestingly, did you at this point, we're now mid 87, I guess. um, Did you think your single seater career was over? Your F1 aspirations were over? Or were you still harboring hopes that you could get back
0: once anybody's been in F1, they've, they've got to be hoping they get back in, and I was as well. It's not easy. It's not easy to be out of F1 and get back into it. And some people have done it very successfully, uh, and others haven't. So, you know, I took what was on offer, and I had some good drives in 87, and I actually started enjoying the, the endurance racing. It took me a while to get used to being in an enclosed cockpit, I didn't really like that. But once you get used to it, it's fine.
1: What about sharing the same car with your teammates?
0: Yeah, that's a little challenging as well after having spent the whole of one's career in in single-seaters. But, you know, at Jaguar, I ended up with Jan Lammers, who's uh, still a very good friend of mine. And he's an excellent driver with a lot of experience. So, you know, to have a teammate like that is good. And they were, TWR were a fantastic outfit. They were a really good team, super professional. Did
1: it feel like a a Formula One team in a way?
0: Yeah, absolutely like a Formula One team. You know, Tom Walkinshaw really knew how to run a race team. And, you know, and as I said, I drove for Sauber in 87 and that was a fantastic car. But the team was a bit of a shambles, to be quite honest with you. I mean, they were very, very nice people. But from a professional point of view, the team were a bit of a shambles.
1: That's interesting. And they had the Mercedes support at that point as well.
0: Yes, they did. But it was very much the Mercedes support was in the engine department.
1: Quick chat, if I may, just about where your passion for racing came from, because it's quite an unusual. I mean, Wikipedia tells me, you know, descendant of Robert the Bruce and all that sort of thing. And you've got, you know, all your your responsibilities as, what are you, the, the, the Marcus of Butte now. It is an unusual springboard into motor racing where did it come from for you it
0: came from having been born and brought up on the island of butte and living in the country my father taught me how to drive when i was very young me and my mates were just obsessed with cars and motorcycles so so did your father race himself no no he didn't my grandfather had died very young and so my father had taken over the family business at an early age and that's what he did. He he ran the family businesses and and he was a businessman. But we were brought up in country at that time, you know, in, in the 60s and the early 70s with huge freedom. A lot of the restrictions that exist in modern day life just didn't exist then. And we were in this very rural environment and you know me and my mates had stripped down scooters and Cars that we'd bought from the the local scrap man. And we we were tearing it up around the moors and um, making ourselves really unpopular by tearing it up in fields and doing massive (laughs) handbrake turns everywhere. So that's where it came from, you know. And driving kind of represented freedom. It's inexplicable that because you can only drive so far in a car, but it just felt like freedom and it felt really good to just hang it out in a car
1: it's a massive step from handbrake turns in a field to embarking on a racing career with all the financial worries that come with that and the dangers which we've already talked about what made you want to race
0: in my late teens i was living in london and i was working i left school after my o levels and i was working I had lots of different jobs. I worked on uh, building sites. I was a painter and decorator with a mate of mine. I was a mechanic. I was selling tools for a company which operated a bit like Snap-on Tools, but they they were selling obviously different makes of tools to Snap-on. And that actually is how I got into racing because the guys who were doing that, the guys who ran that company and Several of the guys who were working in that company were all doing 100 national karting. This was a time where I had no inkling that I would get into racing. And they said to me, you've got to come to a kart race and see what happens. Come and check it out because you might enjoy it. I went along and I saw it and I helped my mates out. And I thought, oh, my God, this looks like the best fun ever. You know, I I bought myself a second-hand car and a couple of Perilla engines and a set of leathers and a crash helmet for what would now be considered pennies, you know. And I can't remember what the chassis cost me, but it was probably 150 quid or something. And I started racing and um, it was just the best.
1: And were you immediately quick or or how how do you remember those (laughs) early
0: laps? I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I used to spin a lot. My friends used to call me Spinner Dumfries. <laughs> and um, I hadn't quite sort of got to grips with the fact that you can't, <laughs> you can't really get any grip until your tires have heated up. But no, I, I, I was quick. I did get quick. I also broke both my ankles in my, f- in my first season. I broke my ankles in the summer and I was back racing in the autumn. Didn't keep me out long. I thought, right, I need to get back into it. Johnny, what was the family thinking
1: at this point? This was just a little bit of fun that son was having, or were they worried about it? Did they encourage you? What messages were you getting?
0: I wasn't really because I wasn't asking. I was my own person. I had my own place to live in. I had a job. Nobody was going to be telling me how to lead my life. So even though those words weren't spoken at the time, they were understood. And my family were always very respectful of that, actually. And I, I've got to give a great deal of respect for, for my dad at the time because he never said anything about it. He just let me get on and do my thing.
1: Did he ever come to some of the races, particularly in Formula One or, or Le Mans?
0: He only ever came to one race, which was... Uh, the British Grand Prix in 86.
1: Well, look at the effect it had. You were quicker than Senna in the first practice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and does, what about, Johnny, what about your cousin, um, Charlie Crichton Stewart? Because he was obviously racing back in the 60s. How much of a role did he have in all of this?
0: Yeah, Charlie was a great ally to me. And he, he was a lovely guy. He was passionate about racing. Charlie used to, introduce me to people and and give me advice as well he was as supportive as he could have been
1: and actually did it is it true that he got you a job at williams or because he was working at williams in the marketing department wasn't he i mean when i say job i don't know were you actually on the payroll i don't know but (laughs) Yeah.
0: yeah i was actually on the payroll i was a van driver and a gopher cool so just what driving stuff around yeah i they had some morris marina van as i recall And yeah, it was the van driver, I was on the payroll. It was when they were still on that trading estate in Didcut. And yeah, it was great, it was fantastic, loved it. You know, I I often used to be on the the Monday morning run where, as you probably know, when everybody was using Cosworth engines, at Cosworth Engineering, it was first come, first serve. So I'd be dispatched up the road at five o'clock in the morning in the van with a couple of DFVs in the back of this thing. (laughs) Did you have much contact with
1: Frank Williams or Patrick Head? Or who were the race drivers back then? Keke Rosberg?
0: No, it was Patrick Neve. It was a one-car team with a March chassis in 1977.
1: Right, we're talking that early. Sorry, I didn't realise we we're talking then.
0: Yeah, there was literally a handful of guys. I mean, Frank was always incredibly friendly. You know, it was Frank and Patrick there. You know, there was... A guy called Mike who, who ran the spares and John Redgrave was the chief mechanic and Bob Torrey and Graham Knapp were the, uh, the mechanics and um, I think Patrick used to engineer the car and there was a truck driver. It was a tiny team. Happy days. Happy days.
1: And Johnny, that confirmed in your mind, did it, that this was the business for you? But it was always as a driver, was it? You didn't consider another role within racing.
0: No, well, let's be clear. So I went there in 77. And then after that, I worked for, for Bob Sparshot in 78. I didn't start racing till 1980. So going and working for the race team was just, it was just a job that would be great fun. And yeah, Charlie did introduce me to that, and I just went and did it. And you know, I was travelling and going to races and feeling the the camaraderie then already, but not really seeing myself as a as a driver. I remember there was a young Kiwi guy called Roy Steele who was working for Williams at the time, and he had a Formula Ford car. He had a Van Diemen, and uh, he said to me, "I'm racing. Just got to do it." Said it's fantastic, but At the time, I was thinking, well, I don't even know the first thing about getting into racing. And it wasn't until I met those guys in the tool company, and they were karting, and I went along, and they were like, this is easy. Just buy the secondhand kit, get your RAC competition license, and get on with it. So I did.
1: Yeah, my goodness, you did, didn't you? You said at the beginning that this is, um, it seems like almost a lifetime ago the career in racing. But how do you reflect on it in terms of the satisfaction it gave you and if you hadn't ever embarked on a racing career what you would have missed out on?
0: Yeah, so now having done it, I know <laughs> what I would have missed out on. And as I said to you earlier, you know, it was just enormously satisfying and I consider myself to be incredibly lucky to have been able to make a career as of doing something, it gave me such incredible pleasure and represented such a huge challenge. And that word challenge is really important because I think challenges are really important in life. And I've always liked to challenge myself. And knowing that I challenged myself in an extreme environment and had a degree of success gives me an enormous amount of satisfaction. And as I said to you earlier, it taught me a hell of a lot about myself and about how to deal with circumstances and how to deal with other people. So you go on and
1: win Le Mans in 1988. And I I would argue that that period was when Le Mans was absolutely at its height in terms of interest, certainly within the UK, but and I think from other categories as well. Quick chat about the race itself,
0: memories of it. It's a fantastic memory. It's a fantastic race to have won you know yan and andy did an incredible job and the car just made it to the end because as you know the gearbox started going in the last 2 hours and yan uh, nursed it across the finishing line and group c was incredibly professional at that time in in the late 80s and competitive and it was great to see so many manufacturers involved so it really felt like it meant something you know what was missing was the TV coverage. And I think if if Group C had had better TV coverage in the late 80s, it could have evolved into something quite great. But yeah, I mean, it's a tough race. It's 24-hour races are not easy. Did you sleep? I couldn't sleep, no. Too wired. You know, I'd go and lie down in, in between my stints, but I couldn't sleep. What was it like to drive along the Mulsanne Strait at night?
1: At two, whatever you're doing, two hundred and fifty miles an hour.
0: Yeah, it was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> I mean, it was fantastic. I mean, you're travelling so fast, everything's relative. That when I started racing, you know, I remember the first time I drove a cart, uh, I, on my hundred national cart. I, I thought this thing's bloody insane, and. And then I got used to that. And then I moved into Formula Ford 1600. And I, and I thought, this thing's bloody insane, because it's got no grip. And then I moved into F3. And I thought, this is fantastic, because it's stuck to the road. <laughs> you know, during all the various different stages of my career, and of anyone's career, what happens is a driver gets more accustomed to the speed, and everything slows down. So, You know, a person that's never driven a single seater, if you stuck them in a single seater and said, there you go, have a go in this thing, they'd be terrified. But for a professional driver, everything slows down. It becomes normal. But driving at those speeds down the Mulsanne Strait, you're really acutely aware of your speed because it is a route nationale in France, right? And it's got a camber on it. So is the car moving all over the road at those speeds? No, you don't want it to be moving (laughs) over the road at those speeds, Tom. (laughs) It's not sort of crabbing its way down. No, it's not crabbing its way down. But whilst overtaking another car, it's super, super sensitive because the car's gone quite light. And as you know, the the Le Mans spec cars were low drag cars. So they had those really low rear wings. The bodywork was different. It's very, very sensitive. And so we had to be really careful. So, you know, you're talking about really almost negligible steering input to move onto the other side of the road and overtake a a car that you're either racing with or a car that is a backmarker. And um, that made me really aware of the speed. But it's fantastic. The kink at the, at the end of the Mulsanne was incredible. I mean, you just, it's flat. I mean, I remembered the year before in, in the Sauber, on wets, it was flat, which is um, quite a sobering thought, actually, in retrospect. <laughs> what did
1: winning Le Mans do for you in your career?
0: I'm not sure because Tom sacked me at the end of the year. <laughs> did he give any reasons? I'd thrown the thing into the wall a couple of times. Um, once when we were leading, that didn't enanimate me Tom Walkinshaw.
1: Immediately after the Le Mans race, I mean, there was a real buzz about the three of you and about the team. Did any F1 teams get back in contact or anything like that?
0: No, because I don't think F1 teams were paying any attention at all to Group C World Championship. But it did, it did put me in the frame for, for a Toyota drive which is where I ended up.
1: Didn't you test for Benetton as well? Did a bit of their active suspension work as well?
0: Yeah. So I knew Peter Collins very well, and I had identified Benetton as a potential seat for me. And I knew Peter well enough to call him and know that unless he was incredibly busy, he'd always take my calls. He offered me that, um, that testing program. And I had experience with active suspension because I'd been involved in the... You remember that Lotus were testing it. They were testing it with the IMSA Chevrolet setup. And so I'd done quite a lot of work with them in 87 as well. Uh, And I really enjoyed that, actually. It was really challenging. And active suspension was incredible. I mean, it really was. Even those early iterations of it? Even those early iterations of it. I mean, I remember testing that that Insta car at Snetterton. And Lola were involved as well because they were the chassis provider. So Eric Broadley was involved and you know he was a great guy to work with too. I mean, the safety at Snetterton was a joke in a car with 850 horsepower. <laughs> uh, anyway, the, the, the system went down on me in, in the middle of... Um, there was the bomb hole and then Corum. So I I turn into Corum, take an early fourth gear and turn into Corum really quick. I take early fourth gear and it was flat. That's how good the car felt there. Even though this thing was a monster that weighed a one metric ton. And the active suspension went down in the middle of the corner. And I went straight into the tires. And Eric Broadley was standing on the bank right in front of where where I shunted it. And it was such a heavy accident that they discovered that the uh, the engine had moved forward in the impact. Were you okay? I was completely okay. Eric went as white as a sheet. (laughs) (laughs) We got off subject there, but yeah, I ended up doing the the Benetton active suspension testing, and I did quite a lot of miles, but you know, it never went anywhere. Johnny,
1: it's an interesting question—the whole danger aspect of your. Profession back then, because I guess in the back of your mind, somewhere you always had another life to go back to or to move on to. And did that affect your attitude to danger when you were in a car?
0: No, I was super focused on my career. Never thought twice about it. All drivers are aware of the danger. But, you know, there's a difference between being fearful of danger and being aware of danger and compartmentalizing that emotion and dealing with it. You know, I mean, people that don't really know anything about racing say things like, oh, God, it must have been terrifying. Well, no, of course not. Because otherwise, if if a person is terrified, they can't do it. You know, when a boxer steps into a boxing ring, they're aware of the risks that face them. Emotionally and psychologically, they have dealt with those emotions. And it's the same for a driver. You know, it's something that's so enormously stimulating and invigorating and we get such pleasure out of it that the risk is accepted and we get on with the job.
1: In the 30 years since you retired, have you found anything that gives you the same sense of satisfaction as driving a car on the limit?
0: No, it's it's irreplaceable, Tom. In terms of sensation and speed and controlling oneself at speed, I would say that backcountry skiing is... Is something that's slightly related. It's different, but it's related. It's something that I love doing now. But motor racing, competitive motor racing is irreplaceable. What is backcountry
1: skiing? Is that just off-piste?
0: Yeah, yeah. Heli skiing. Oh, wow. Okay,
1: off-piste on steroids. (laughs) (laughs) When were you happiest? Was it dominating Formula 3? Was it just being in Formula 1? Or was it that winning Le Mans? is Mans? What was your happiest memory?
0: I'd say Formula Ford and Formula 3. The grassroots is enormously appealing. You haven't yet reached the Formulae, where all the bullshit is, which is, you know, at, at the higher professional level, there's too much politics and too much bullshit. And at grassroots levels, it's just a hell of a lot of fun.
1: And if one of your children said to you now, Dad, I want to have a go. What would your reaction be?
0: Yeah, I'd say go for it. But get a manager. Get a manager, yeah. <laughs> you would support them? Yeah, I would. But none of them have wanted to. And apart from my youngest daughter, who's 20, they're all now past the age where they could embark upon a career. You're safe. I'm safe.
1: <laughs> Johnny, one final thing. is 2002, 2003, the Mount Stewart Motorsport Classic. I remember Takuma Sato telling me that he took the BAR Honda up for a demonstration. What prompted that and how come it no longer exists?
0: Okay, so we, the, the house is open to the public, that Mount Stewart and what was formerly known as the Butte Estate is now all vested in a charitable trust called the Mount Stewart Trust. And it's not part of the commercial operations of my family. So we run it as a charitable trust and it's a, it's a visitor heritage attraction. And so at the time, I thought, well, this is going to be a great way of getting a lot of people onto the island and providing income for trust and boosting the local economy. We only ran it for two years because the logistics, because we're on an island and the island is serviced by Caledonia McBrain, which is the ferry company. It's very complicated, expensive. There's a lack of accommodation, and the logistics were a nightmare. So, unfortunately, we had to bin it after the, the second year, uh, which was a shame. But, it, you know, it, it is what it is. But I remember, yeah, Sato was absolutely mental in that thing it was wet (laughs) he absolutely (laughs) nailed it
1: what did you have there did you create a a circuit or was there a sort of a a bit like at goodwood is there a long sort of driveway
0: that's the part of the drive part of the front drive and the back drive it's a really narrow road with trees on either side (laughs)
1: and taku gave it a bit did he he gave it big welly yeah oh that's great well johnny it's been lovely to speak to you thank you very much for your time and um just fascinating to just get your take on it in a a way having 30 years reflection makes it even better to talk about your career now than it would have been 30 years ago really
0: tom it's been a great pleasure talking to you and it's it's fun from time to time to reminisce i i don't often talk about racing but uh, from time to time i really enjoy it it's been good talking to you
1: great stuff thanks johnny That was one of the most honest conversations I've ever had with a racing driver. Some try to rewrite history once they retired, but not Johnny. He didn't make any excuses during that chat, even if he did leave us with a sense of what might have been. Had he not tested for Ferrari, would other opportunities have presented themselves? Or what if he'd signed a long-term deal with Bernie Ecclestone and Brabham? All of those options were there for the taking at one point, but he was given some poor advice and made some bad decisions. Johnny, many thanks for your time. It was great to chat and to reflect on your career. Well, that's almost it for this week. But before I go, let's rummage through the virtual mailbag to see what you've been saying about the show. And lots of you, like me, loved hearing from Alfa Romeo boss Fred Vasseur last week. We saw a whole new side to him. Nicholas Harburg said this, Just finished the interview with Fred Vasseur. I'm sure he's a shrewd businessman, but he seems genuinely funny and a humble family man. His reaction when you mentioned president of the FIA made me laugh out loud in the car. Keep them coming. Thanks, Nicholas. He made me laugh out loud too. He seems a very genuine man, and it'll be fascinating to see how quickly he can turn around Alpha's fortunes. When I saw him in Spain last weekend, we had a good chat about the show, and he said he'd enjoyed it. Then there was this from Lee Rutgers. Fred's laugh is truly contagious, he says. It was great to hear his stories, and a side of him I really enjoyed. Oh, and did I mention Fred's laugh? (laughs) Yes, Lee, it's a wonderful laugh. And Tim Merritt got in touch to say the laugh is similar to Peter Law's. Google Peter, and you'll see what Tim means. Finally this week, let's hear from Andrew. Great podcast with Fred this week, he says. An infectious laugh, a great sense of humour, and he's very humble about his role giving young drivers a launch pad. Without him and his teams, some of the past, current and future world drivers champions might not have made it into Formula One. Spot on, Andrew. More than half of the current F1 grid has passed through Fred's junior teams, so there are a lot of people who owe him a great debt of gratitude. We love all of your messages and well wishes, so please keep them coming. And as ever, I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid. And we love reading your comments on YouTube too. That's it for this week, folks. We've got another fine guest for you next week. Someone for whom excellence has become second nature. I won't spoil it for you. You'll have to tune in to find out who I'm talking about. As ever, thanks for listening. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out.